question is, do you share your faith? Do you tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ? One of the reasons why you might answer in the negative is because you don't know how people might react and you are perhaps a little afraid of what that reaction may mean to your person. And in fact, you may have heard and rightly heard that Christians do get persecuted for their faith. This is not this is not a new thing. This is something that's been happening throughout the millennia. Uh, for instance, you may well know what happened after the message of Christ captured the attention of the Roman emperors. They condemned countless Christians to death. And you may be aware of that. But you may also be aware of this fact that once the Christian message was there, it did not go away, and eventually it did convert Rome. And the pagan persecution stopped. We have to be aware that there are different reactions. We have to be aware that persecution comes not just from pagan sources, but also from supposedly godly sources as well. It began in the synagogues, often in the book of Acts. We saw this, how uh, those who stumbled on the message of Jesus Christ stirred others up to beat and to kill believers. It continued in the Roman Catholic Church as it gained power and departed from the teachings of Scripture. It began to launch inquisitions which would root out the supposed heretics who wanted nothing more than to worship according to the teachings of Holy Scripture. Persecution and violence does sometimes come. And thankfully, within our own context, within our own nation, we have not seen that nearly as much. Why is that? Because we have religious freedom ensconced right there in the First Amendment of our Constitution. Sadly, it does appear that there's been increasing pushback against this ideal in our culture. We've seen politicians, for instance, who have been suddenly, for, for years, for decades really, suddenly changing the idea from freedom of religion to freedom of worship. And you understand that that is a subtle but meaningful change because it relegates religion to what we do right here on Sunday mornings. It removes it from the public square. In fact, increasingly, we have seen people try to remove even the right to assembly, as we have seen during the COVID lockdowns. And we may see again if there is a new virus or if some of the climate change alarmists would have their way. In fact, We've also seen people fighting in the courts to get Christians 
in the workplace to cave on their convictions. Now, thankfully, we are celebrating right now some key Supreme Court victories. We are very thankful for that, that uh, a person cannot compel another person to participate in speech that that person disagrees with. A website designer, for instance, uh, here in Colorado, does not have to design a website for a person that that, or for a cause, I should say, that that uh, designer disagrees with. But that is happening more and more. We know that uh, that is not an ultimate victory, that things can change. We know that uh, within the workplace, companies are, are requiring employees to attend diversity classes. What sounds all nice and inclusive is in fact a force to pigeonhole the workers into saying something that they disagree with. It is the modern equivalent of offering the pinch of incense to Caesar. You must say what we want you to say in the case of pronouns, in the case of, of a whole slew of issues. And so we're seeing this tightening, this restricting within our own culture. And we understand that there are going to be people who react poorly to our presentation of Jesus Christ or even us simply living out his values, his truths. And of course, as I've been talking about these things, I have been getting more and more to the local arena and we have not even discussed some of the more immediate social impacts, such as the loss of friends, if you talk about Jesus, the ire of your family being raised when you talk about the things of God. The claims of Christ will indeed evoke a number of reactions from people. Some will reject him outright and they will be annoyed with you. We have to count that cost. Others may seem to have a religious experience, one that we may rejoice with, but they are ultimately offended and troubled by the claims of Christ and will in turn trouble the people of God. This is what we see even while Christ addressed the crowds in Jerusalem. And this is exactly what we read right here. In this passage, we see at least five responses to Christ's claims. And we should expect these same reactions when we talk about Christ to the lost world. Some will respond with mockery. Some will respond with violence. Some will respond with belief. But some will respond with persecution. And finally, some will respond with confusion. And so let's think about each of these so that we are better prepared as we make Christ Lord in our hearts and we make ourselves ready to give an answer for the hope which lives within us. First, some respond with mockery. Back in verses 25 through 27, we read this. 
So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly. And they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we do not know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. And so gathered at Jerusalem, you'll remember, are the various groups of Jewish people for the Feast of Tabernacles. They are there celebrating, but they are surprised when at the middle of the feast, Jesus stands up. Jesus, who came to the feast privately, he stands up in the temple and he begins to teach them. The residents of Jerusalem are surprised at his presence, because, not only because he came privately and so no one knew he was there, they are also surprised because they know well that their leaders despise Jesus and they are seeking his life. Why are they doing so? Because Jesus dared to heal a man on the Sabbath day. And that's back in John chapter 5 that we read about that. And so the Galilean Jews, when they come, they are less aware of such political machinations with their religious leaders there in Jerusalem. But word had gotten out among the Jerusalem locals that they knew what was going on. And so in verse 25, some were saying this, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Now the way they frame this question in the original language, it expects a positive response. In other words, they do expect that, that this is in fact the case. This is the man that they are seeking to kill. And they knew that their leaders hated him. But this is what makes this scene so surreal for them. Because in verse 26, they say, look, he is speaking publicly. And they're saying nothing to him. Jesus was boldly in their midst. He was standing there speaking words that they knew their leaders condemned. Where's the pushback? Of course, they did give pushback, and as one commentary notes, the rulers had indeed said something, but Jesus had promptly closed their mouths, and they kept them closed. <laughs> Jesus had, in fact, publicly shamed those who had spoken against him, and so they dare not speak up again. But that's what leads some in Jerusalem to this ridiculous notion. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Now, the previous question expected a positive response. This question, in the way that it's framed in the original language, expects a negative response. They don't think that their rulers really think that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet, Jesus remains teaching up there unchallenged. And so the people ask what must amount then to a sarcastic question. They don't really know that he's the Christ, do they? They're being sarcastic. In other words, they're engaging in mockery. Mockery at the notion that this really could be the Messiah. Now, they do have a reason for their mockery. 
They rejected the notion, at least the people who are saying this, they rejected the notion that Jesus is the Messiah based on what they say in verse 27. We know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Now, if you're not familiar with the teachings of that day, this sentence may not make much sense to you. What are they talking about? Well, it appears that there is this folk religion that had arisen at that time, or a folk tradition that had arisen at that time, that the Messiah would be a, a, a hidden Messiah, if you will. That, that, that he would just suddenly appear one day and begin teaching without any prior warning. And the folks may not know where he's from. Uh, this, by the way, is not from Scripture. They did not get this from the pages of Scripture. And this is why, if you've read your Bible dutifully, cover to cover, you may say, I, I still don't understand what verse 27 is talking about. That's because this is not from the Bible. This is actually from non-canonical and apocryphal sources. Uh, after Malachi's time, there arose a number of writings uh, post-exile. They were they were writings that had a lot to do with the coming of the Messiah. Uh, in many cases, they they did cover other topics. Some of them claimed to be written by the people in Scripture, but we, we date them. We know that that they're way too late in history to be written by the people in Scripture. Uh, for instance, one Enoch claims to be written by Enoch, the guy, you know, all the way at the beginning of the Bible, one of one of uh, uh, Adam's grandsons. In fact, he's the seventh from Adam, if memory serves. Well, Enoch couldn't have written that because the book actually doesn't appear in history until just a couple hundred years before Christ. The same thing with Second Esdras. Uh, we see that coming up, and that's actually included in the Catholic Apocrypha, but it's not inspired scripture. These are books that taught that the Messiah might be actually someone who just appears one day, and you don't know where he's from. And this actually entered into Jewish teaching. Uh, we can see in their, in their documents, for instance, three things come wholly unexpected. Messiah, a godsend, and a scorpion. <laughs> of course, that's there's probably some truth in that, right? Uh, we don't expect sometimes when these things happen, but you can see that they put Messiah right up there, that we, we, we won't know when he comes. And there's actually a, an argument in the second century between a Jewish teacher, uh, in that I mean an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, or a non-believer in Jesus Christ, and a Christian apologist. And if it's like that argument, the Jewish teacher there said that they believed that the Messiah would be unknown even to himself and would have virtually no power until Elijah would appear and anoint him to begin the long-expected Messianic era. 
And so you can see what the general belief, what the general consensus was in the first and second century. And so we see this messianic doctrine that the Messiah would be hidden. Uh, maybe he wouldn't even know who he was until one day he gets anointed from on high and then suddenly he understands his mission. And it was popular at that time and, and even beyond that. Well, as such, as they are considering the fact that Jesus is a Galilean, some of the people in Jerusalem did not believe he could fulfill the Messianic requirements. Again, this is all based on their non-biblical tradition. Now, there are reasons why people will mock your faith. They will mock the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that this was the popular narrative of the time. And they didn't want to go against the popular narrative. The popular narrative today is still against Jesus Christ. Is it based on some arcane Jewish tradition? No, it's not. But there are still other reasons why people mock Jesus today. And they will mock the idea of believing in Jesus, that, that leaders believe in Jesus, or that Jesus is the Messiah, based on whatever is going on in the day. Now, of course, some mockers are just not serious people. Right? Some mockers uh, mock because they want to continue in their own sins and they don't want to think about hard truths. And that's just where they are. They, they, they just think the whole thing is silly and it's because they don't even want to give it more than a moment's thought. But there are sometimes people who are serious, but they still engage in mockery because they are not initially willing to concede that so many other people might be wrong. Of course, there have been so many other people wrong in history. Just within our own history, there was a time when most people thought it was okay to kidnap people from Africa and bring them over here and enslave them and never give them freedom nor give their families freedom. That was a majority belief at, at one point among people. Was that the right belief? No. No, it was not. And so, just by... Uh, Probing a little bit, sometimes you can get to the heart of where the mockery is coming from. In this case, it's coming from a false Jewish belief. And we have to ask our Lord for wisdom in how to deal with the mockery. Because in some cases, we don't answer a fool according to his folly. But in some cases, we must answer a fool according to his folly. That's in Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. It says both. Don't answer a fool according to his folly and answer a fool according to his folly. We need the wisdom to know which approach is the right approach. Our Lord told us back in Matthew chapter 7. We read this last time. Matthew 7, 6. Not to give what is holy to the dogs, nor to throw pearls before swine. Why? Because uh, it's just a waste of time. However, the Lord does sometimes respond to unbelievers, and that's what we see next. 
And so it's interesting to see that, and we must just simply ask the Lord for wisdom. Lord, where is this person coming from? How do I respond? And you might you might respond with with something that may be, that 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 can uh, force a person to start to think about these issues again. We see with that with our Lord. Our Lord doesn't respond with a biblical lesson in truth and the dangers of adding to Scripture, which might be a nice clinical way to respond. He actually responds by twisting their mockery into truth and into instruction. And that's what we see next. Some respond with mockery, and so he responds to them. But as he responds to them, that causes them to respond with violence. And that is what we see next. So in verse 28, we read this. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Now, there is some debate, you know, just from our last point, there is some debate as to whether Jesus is speaking with his own mockery. You know, saying something like, oh, well, you, you, you know me, right? You know where I'm from. You know, there's, there, there may be some kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, response with that. They might have known that he's from Galilee, but did they know that he was born in Bethlehem and thus fulfilling prophetic scripture? Did they know that? No, they probably didn't know that. So they didn't really know where he is from. Did they know that he was born of a virgin? So also fulfilling scripture there? No, they definitely didn't know that. And so it's unlikely that they really knew where he was from. But it's difficult to say just based on a reading here exactly the kind of attitude he assumed with them. In fact, I, even though he may have said this with a small smile on his face, uh, we do read in this verse that he said this with the motivation of teaching. He's not just mocking them in return. He is trying to teach them. And that should always be our motivation as well. And so he, he cries out, he speaks over them, and he says that his origin is indeed supernatural. Remember what I said earlier, that they believe that, his, that, that, that the Messiah would have to get some kind of anointing, maybe from Elijah, before he could begin that mission. Well, Jesus says that his, his mission is indeed not of himself. And he says that again in the next chapter. If you look at chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. They were looking for a Messiah whose authority is granted to him from above. Well, guess what? That is exactly what Jesus claims. It may not happen exactly as their tradition had said, but it is, at the, at the core of that, there is a truth that Jesus seizes upon, and he reveals that to them. Yes, indeed, my origin is from above. And he's taught that before. And in fact, Jesus says, he who sent me is true. 
Their false reasons for rejecting him are not true reasons. In fact, in their rejection of him, they are not being true to the Father. But guess what? The Father is true. The Father is true. Even when we fail to be faithful in what we are supposed to do, He is faithful. He is true. They may not accept that He was the one that the Father sends, but the Father sends Him anyway because the Father is true. And what a blessed assurance that is because we don't always do what we're supposed to do, do we? And yet, <laughs> the Father is true. What a blessed assurance that is. What a, what a wonderful truth that is. But because they do ultimately reject the Messiah, they prove that they don't really know this God who they claim they, reserve, they, they, they serve. They might have that religious experience. Again, they might, have, they might be making claims, religious claims, religious professions, but they do not truly know God because they are rejecting the Messiah. And so Jesus says this to them. It's cutting, but they need to hear it. He says, this is the one whom you do not know. Ouch! You know, Jesus is trying to avoid offense. This is not the way to go about it, right? <laughs> you don't know God. Wow! But he continues to press their ignorance of God. And so he says in verse 29, I know him because I am from him. And he sent me. In fact, the, the personal pronoun there in the, Hebrew, or in the Greek here is emphatic. We could say, I, I know him. He, he, he's pointing to himself in contrast to them. You don't know him, but I, I know him. He's emphasizing that. Jesus had an intimate relationship with the Father. We saw that all the way back in the very first verse, didn't we? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. This is, this is the relationship that he had in the beginning. And they desperately need to know God if they are to know who God's Messiah is. Now, there are two ways that you could respond to that. You could respond to that with some humility and say, Oh, maybe I don't know all that I think I know. Maybe I don't know God as well as I think I need to know God. Or as well as I think I know God, I should say. I need to know Him more, right? That's one way to respond with some humility. But how do they respond? They respond with anger. And we read in verse 30 that they were seeking to seize Him. That is the same word that we would associate with arresting an individual. They are seeking to lay their hands on him. They are seeking to seize him. To put him under arrest might be one way of thinking about the term. However, this is an unofficial action on the part of the people. We might say, well, maybe this is a kind of citizen's arrest. Maybe, but we don't know what their intentions are. 
We don't know what they're planning to do with Jesus once they seize him. Why, why are they doing this? Well, perhaps they perceived a lack of leadership. I mean, we already read them saying, you know, why aren't they saying anything to him? Why, 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 do, do the rulers secretly think he's the Messiah? No, we don't think that's what, what's happening. So why is he up there unchallenged? And so now the people are taking it into their own hands to seize him. Uh, one commentary notes that the confused Jerusalemites here, they felt... That if he was a deceiver, he should be locked up. Or if he was the Messiah, they should accept him. Either way, nothing's being done officially, and so they now take this unofficial action. They engage in a kind of vigilantism. They don't know if or we don't know if they intended to turn Jesus over to the authorities after they arrest him, or if they intend to silence him themselves. But they are choosing violence. They attempt to seize him. I say attempt because they don't succeed. And we read here that no man laid his hand upon him because his hour had not yet come. This isn't the only time we see this. There are various, various, say, arrest attempts upon Jesus in the Gospels. We read about it in Matthew 21. We read about it here in this chapter. Uh, in fact, we read about it twice. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. We'll read about it in John chapter 10. Various unsuccessful attempts. Why? Because God is protecting His Messiah. As one commentary notes, they could not lay a hand on Him because the Father's hand was over Him. They could not lay a hand on him because his father's hand was over him. He was protected. God had appointed an hour for Christ to suffer, yes, and die, yes, at their hands, yes, at the Gentiles' hands, yes. But until then, Jesus was perfectly safe. And that's true for all of us. We fear those times of violence. We fear those times of tension. We fear when people get offended at our truth claims. We don't know what they're going to do. We don't know if they're going to try to lay hands on us. We don't know if they're going to throw rocks at us like they have done to preachers in the past. We don't know if they are going to just become offensive and obscene with us. It may be. It may be that all of these things happen. Now, we shouldn't go out of our way to be offensive with the truth. However, we also don't self-censor. Well, if I say that, people are going to be offended. Well, it might be. I think John MacArthur said, let them be offended. They've been offending God all their lives. Right? Sometimes people need to hear a word, and yes, sometimes that word is going to offend the person. Sometimes that person is going to respond with anger, and yes, maybe even violence. There will be people who get offended, and even violently so. 
Now, Proverbs 27.12 says that the wise sees danger. The prudent sees danger and avoids it. You don't have to stand there. If you, if you know someone's about to throw a punch, you, you can... You can try to de-escalate the situation. I'm not saying that you that you need to be punched for Jesus. You don't necessarily have to let that happen. But you'd say, yeah, but if I'm saying these things, people are going to get offended. They're going to... They, they, they may, in fact, do these things. Yes, they might. And so, while we try to be wise... We also entrust ourselves to the sovereign plan and protection of God. And if it's not God's will for us to die that day, guess what's not going to happen? We're not going to die that day. And if we do, we're going to be in the arms of Jesus and we don't have to worry about this world anymore. <laughs> so let's just trust Him with protection. We endure all of this because we might have the blessing of seeing something, something spectacular, something that the Lord allows us to be in on, something that we might have the blessed opportunity to tell others about even on into eternity. And that's what comes next. Some respond with belief. Some respond with belief. We see in verse 31, but many of the crowd believed him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has? Or he will not perform more signs than this man has, will he? You know, this is such a wonderful respite, this verse. To, to, to see the, the, the people responding in a positive way to the claims of Christ. Now, it's not immediately clear who it is who's believing. You know, we have the singular crowd again, so it might be just the Galilean Jews, like we talked about in verse 20. It might just be them who believe. It also might be that, that, that John is stepping back as a writer now, and he's considering all the crowds as one now. Uh, some of the crowd had, had, had considered doing violence against Jesus, but now we're seeing that many believe. So this might be a stay in the crowds in general that he's intending. We're not exactly sure right here what he means, but we can rest assured that some believed. In fact, it says many believed, right? Many believed. And they were questioning, just like they're questioning in verse 26, but they do so now with more conviction. Jesus had performed signs. These signs are miracles which attest to the truth of what he claims. Back in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 36, he had said this, that his works testify that the Father has sent him. His works testify that the Father had sent him. This is evidence that he is providing. He's not just making claims. He is providing evidence. And so they are responding now both to his testimony and to the evidence that the Lord has laid out and they have come to believe. Some of these 
thoughts, by the way, as they considered his his works. Some of these thoughts were already brewing in the minds uh, of, of Jews all throughout the community. For instance, you might remember that Pharisee Nicodemus who came to Jesus and said this, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus, on some level, understood, even though he didn't understand about what it meant to be born again, right, in John 3. He didn't know all of that yet. He did understand, on some level, that Jesus must have been from God. Nicodemus saying, we, obviously, most of the Pharisees reject this premise. But there were a few who saw the signs and said there must be something to this. In fact, the signs are so convincing that in chapter 11, John 11, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather and they are forced to ask themselves, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. See, even the unbelievers, they have these moments of conscience. And they have these moments where, where it's almost as though they, are, they find themselves in the valley of decision, right? They have this moment where it seems as though they might tip over into belief, even if they don't. The evidence is there. It is sad that many choose to reject it. The evidence is still there today. We're, we, we don't ask people to just read this and just, you know, pray that God will give you a warm feeling in your bosom and that's how you'll, you'll know it's true. No, we can, we can look at history. We can see, okay, these places actually existed and we can look at uh, history external to the Bible and see the testimony there. We can see within the Bible that there are many lines of testimony. Why? We have Matthew and then we have Mark and then we have Luke and then we have John. These are four witnesses, right, who are testifying. They're giving unique accounts to the truth of what they saw. We, we, we see all these evidences. We see prophecy being fulfilled in the Old Testament. And we know that it's been fulfilled because we can go back and we find documents sometimes that's, that are buried in, in caves and in the sand. And we know that the Bible has not been tampered with. We know that 200 years before Jesus came, there were prophecies which existed hundreds of years before that, and we know that because we found these documents that no one else had access to in, in the caves of Qumran, and we know that, that there were prophecies concerning where Jesus would be born, where Jesus, uh, or how Jesus would live, what would come about in his life, and these were all predictions of the Messiah. The evidence is there. People just simply don't want to listen to the evidence because they're afraid that if they give the evidence a fair hearing, they will believe. And there are some who just simply will not believe, as we see here. In fact, they are some of the ones with the greatest evidence and the greatest resources at their hands. And they reject him. The scribes and the Pharisees. The, the chief priests and the Pharisees in this case. 
And as the people just just who do believe just can't seem to keep quiet about their belief, which is sometimes true, right? You come to Jesus and you think you're whispering, but you're not whispering, right? And you just you don't see the people keeping quiet about this belief. Well, unfortunately, the rulers over here. And they're troubled. And they respond with persecution, which is the next thing we see. Official persecution. We, we might say that the violence that the people would show Jesus as they were trying to seize him, that was persecution as well. But here we have what we could call state-sponsored persecution against Jesus. Verse, verse 32 through 34. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Again, these new believers, they were muttering or as the Legacy Standard Bible translates there, they were whispering. <laughs> Maybe not as much as they thought they were, though, because they're overheard. Maybe it's that the uh, rulers are a little bit more sensitive now, so they have people in the crowd who are listening for them to gauge what the opinion of the crowd is. This is what we see with leaders without conviction. They, they lead by polling, right? You know, what's... <laughs> You know, what's going to be popular, what's going to be unpopular, and they make their decisions based on that. And there was a little bit of that. They're afraid to seize Jesus openly at times because they're afraid of the crowd. We're not exactly sure how they overhear, but they respond now with an official attempt to arrest Jesus. And it's interesting to see that this arrest warrant, if you will, comes from a joint effort of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Why do I say it's interesting? Because historically, since these two groups of individuals come from different social classes, they were often enemies in regards to both politics and religion. They were not friends, the chief priests and the Pharisees. To see them together on this issue shows that both groups agreed about the threat that Jesus posed to them. The people are listening to Jesus. The people are believing in Jesus. we got to do something about that. You know, if there's one man who can bring enemies together, whether in love or in hatred of him, it's Jesus Christ. And so united in their desire to silence Jesus and to keep the crowd from following him any further, they sent officers to seize him. And we don't read anything more about that in the immediate verses that we're reading today, but if you skip down to verses 45 and 46, you'll see that the officers did not arrest Jesus because they are impressed by his words. They say in verse 26 or verse 46, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. 
they're impressed with his words. You know, God protects his son in a number of ways, right? He protects all of us in a number of ways. Sometimes it's just by uh, the truth going out and impressing people. Sometimes that happens. There have been times when autocratic governments, oppressive governments, have sent arrest warrants out for pastors, for church members, and they, they, they go and they hear the words that are spoken. Maybe this is also within God's timing because these officers have not heard the truth of the gospel before. They come and they hear the truth of the gospel and they choose in that moment not to comply with the orders of the warrant after they hear the truth. Sometimes, oftentimes, they do, even within our own country. Again, uh, during COVID, we saw pastors being arrested within our own country. Uh, it didn't happen a lot. Uh, it was threatened a lot more than it actually happened. In Canada, it happened a little bit more. A Western country, as surprising as that may seem. There's a documentary that's coming out very soon called The Essential Church uh, that will uh, cover these things. And I do encourage you to watch that. But sometimes God actually works it out to where the officers hear the truth and they decide to walk away. They don't decide not to fulfill the demands of the government in that time. By the way, as, as I say that, it's it, it just in my mind, there may be, for, for officers of the law, there may be a time when you, when you will have to wrestle with this option. Because as, as the days grow darker, there may be orders that come down which are unconstitutional and which go against the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will have to make a choice in that moment to obey and thus, and thus participate with an unlawful action and one that will oppress your brothers and your sisters or to stand up and push back. And there may be consequences for that but their consequences well earned. You'll have to make that choice. I think a lot of people in various positions will be having to make that choice very soon. Jesus thwarts their attempts by God's grace to persecute him. And he responds to them and he says, for a little while longer I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. It's almost like he's telling him, just be patient. You'll have your day. In fact, at this juncture, there's only about six months left in his earthly ministry. You say, wow, we're not that deep into John yet. John slows down as, as we approach the Passion Week. You'll start to see a slowing in the book of John as we, as we get closer and closer to that time when his hour approaches. There's more to what Jesus is saying, though, than simple time. He's also telling them, warning them, that the day is growing late. 
that there's precious little time to consider what he's saying. You know, back in verse 30, we saw that some of the crowd was seeking him in a negative sense. Jesus says in verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. He says, where I am, you cannot come. He says almost the opposite to his disciples in John 14. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, or many rooms, depending on the translation there. If I go, I will come again, so that where I am, there you may be also. But here, Jesus warns, where I am, you cannot come. There are some who are going to reject Jesus, and they are not going to be with him in glory. Even though they may seek him. But the people don't understand and some respond with confusion. This is the last point. Verses 35 and 36. We read, Then the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go? That we will not find him. He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is his statement? That he said, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. You know, those who don't believe in Jesus, they mainly do so because they just don't grasp his words. They don't understand. But I want you to understand something. This is not an education problem on their part. Sure, they need to hear the words to believe. Faith comes by hearing. They need to hear the words to believe. But people are often willingly ignorant. You, you, you have to understand that folks want to avoid the light. They don't want to step out into the light. This is because of sin. It's also because of Satan. The places like 2 Corinthians 4 talk about the fact that he blinds the eyes of the unbelievers in this world so they won't see the glories of Christ. And there is a lethal combination out there in unbelievers of the devil, of the world, and of personal sin which will keep them unaware of the truth. And they like it like that. They like it like that. And so they ask where he's going. You know, later they'll ask a similar question, John 8. Is he going to go kill himself? Here they're asking, is he going to go into the Gentile territory? Is he going to not just teach the Jews, the dispersion in the Gentile territory, the Greek territory? Or is he actually going to be teaching the Gentiles? Is he now going to turn to the Gentiles? Now they respond with a little bit of mockery. Because they don't believe he's actually going to do this. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because in a display... <laughs> this is a display of insight in the midst of their darkness. They actually predict the Christian mission. <laughs> right? Because this is exactly what we'll see in the book of Acts. That this is, this is where the message is going to go. It's going to go to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. But they respond with more mockery because they don't understand. They're mystified by his words. And those who reject Christ will only become more mystified. They will understand less and less and less as time goes on because they are purposefully separating themselves from what is logical, what is reasonable, and what is true. 
And so the mind, as, as it's continuing to do mental gymnastics to stay away from the truth, it's going to begin to embrace more and more bizarre beliefs and understandings, and it's going to move further and further away from any semblance of the truth. One thing's for certain, though, Jesus' words leave a lasting effect on those who reject it. And the best thing we can do is to pray that God will open the eyes of the confused so that they would be granted understanding and repentance as needed. You know, as we think about these responses to the truth, one thing is one thing that we must walk away with is this the time is short. And there are more people who will reject the truth for various reasons than those who accept it. And we don't want to see people waiting until the last moment when there is no hope to try to or, and, and see them say, okay, well, now I'm going to try to seek him. You know, there's an example of this in the Old Testament. One author points it out. He says, we have a striking example of, in Esau in Genesis. Esau, who, on the account of having lost his birthright, not only is oppressed with grief, but groans and gnashes his teeth and breaks out into furious indignation. But yet, so far is he from the right way of seeking the blessing that at the very time when he is seeking it, he renders himself more unworthy of it. There are those who are going to face moments in life when they're going to be seeking the truth because they are facing so many lies that, that, they, that they approach a breaking point. Either I embrace insanity or I, I, I have to get a hold of some kind of truth. I can't continue floating through life. And yet, if they have continued to spit in the face of God and continued to trample upon the grace of God... Will they turn to him in that moment? And that moment may, in fact, be in the fires of hell. When they finally realize, hey, wait a minute, maybe I should have believed this message. Maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't have embraced sin all my life. Maybe I shouldn't have mocked. Maybe I shouldn't have ridiculed. Maybe I shouldn't have made so much fun of the truths that the Creator God put in front of me. And then there's that realization, maybe it's too late. Well, as long as there is breath in your lungs, if you're an unbeliever, it's not too late. And you have to ask yourself, why have I not believed this message before? Is it because I want to remain willingly ignorant? Is it because I love the darkness more than the light and I'm afraid to step into the light? You have to be honest with yourself there. And if that is your case, understand that there is still time in this moment there's still a little bit of daylight out there step into it ask the Lord to show himself to you 
as you study his word, as you examine the claims of the gospel, and you find that both God and his Christ are true. Trust in the Lord and be saved from the wrath that is to come before it is too late for you. And where I was going a moment ago is with this. If you are a believer, understand that it's your responsibility to share this glorious message with people before it's too late for them. I can't do it all. Pastor Jorge can't do it all. We have a responsibility as well, but you are in places where we are not. And God has designed it that way. You have friends, you have family who need to know the truth. You can share the truth in a number of ways. And of course, we could talk about it at another time, all those ways. We could talk about uh, handing out tracts. We can talk about street evangelism. We can talk about internet outreaches. We can talk about missions. We can talk about all those things. But let's just begin to talk about talking about Jesus. Let's just talk about the fact that there are personal conversations that you can engage in. One-on-one -on -one conversations with people who you know who need to know the truth of the gospel and you might be fearful and I understand that there's social anxiety and then there's uh, the anxiety of being rejected there's the anxiety of everything including the anxiety of losing friends and loved ones and yes it's true that some might respond poorly but is not the message worth it is not eternity worth it Folks, God is faithful. We can rest on His grace to be faithful ourselves. He will forgive all our sins, including our sin for not being faithful in sharing His Word. But by His grace, He will help us to gain the confidence and the boldness to share our faith as it needs to be shared. Trust in Him. If you don't believe, Trust in Him for salvation if you do believe. Trust in Him for the grace to be able to share your faith with others. A faith that we will remember together in just a moment as we partake in communion.